This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. I read the account this past week of a gentleman who recently planted a church in the state of Georgia, somewhere up in North Georgia, and someone asked him how his church plant was going, and he said, well, we really don't do a lot. We're a pretty simple church. We do a lot of preaching, a lot of praying, and a lot of singing. And I like that. You know, when we started the church here several years ago, that was really our desire. We wanted to emphasize the primary means of grace um, that are outlined in Scripture and outlined in the confessions, which means that we do a lot of preaching, we do a lot of praying, and we do a lot of singing. And it is such a joy each Lord's Day Uh, to be part of a church that emphasizes that as its main emphasis. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel. We're not trying to impress anybody. We're not trying to uh, appeal to the masses in some sort of carnal way. Our confidence is rooted supremely in the scriptures and in God's design on how the church is going to look. So I'm so grateful that um, we've reduced this thing down to what is simple and what God has commanded us to do. Well, I'm excited this morning to look at Romans 5 again with you, so take your Bibles and be turning to Romans chapter 5. Uh, This morning, we want to begin looking at verses 12 through 21, and we're not going to look at all of these verses this morning, but I would like to at least read all of these verses so that you have them in your mind as we begin our journey in our verse-by-verse study of these verses. So please stand to your feet in honor of the reading of God's Word as I pick up in verse number 12. Paul writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. May God add his blessing to his word. Please be seated. 
It was on February 21st, 2018 that I awoke in my hotel room in Los Angeles, California in preparation to defend uh, my doctoral project before a committee at the Master's Seminary. Now, the evening before was quite a scurry of activity because after I had flown into Los Angeles, I received a, a text message which indicated the fact that the committee was unable to open my file uh, containing my project, which was some 250-plus pages and uh, over a 1,000 footnotes. They were unable to open it or they had lost the file. I'm still not really sure exactly what happened, but what I do know is I opened my computer in my hotel room. I was very scared and could not even think straight to find the file to be able to resend. But I did find it and I was able to send it and I went to bed And I'll never forget, I woke up that morning, February 21st, 2018, one of the first things that came across my news feed was the news that evangelist Billy Graham had died. He had died that morning. And as I sat there, I remember thinking to myself, well, preachers come and preachers go. Everyone has their shot who's called into the ministry to be faithful, to handle the word of God for the time period that God has allotted and determined for that particular individual, and it was Billy Graham's time to go. I carried that thought with me as I went to stand before the committee to defend uh, my doctoral thesis, and everything went well. I was able to pass that uh, really with not much criticism, but there was one suggestion, and the suggestion was a surprising one, one that I wasn't expecting because I had seen people go in before the committee and come down with their heads down, walking back to their cars, completely dejected. And so I assumed that I was going to have some sort of criticism thrown at me, but instead they said, what we would like you to do is add an appendix to your doctoral project. We want you to add an appendix to the doctoral project that you wrote, and we want to use that appendix as a journal article in our next publication of the seminary's journal. I said, well, great, what's the topic? They said, we want you to take your Bible, and we want you to look up Romans 5, verses 12 through 21, and we want you to write an exegetical paper, appendix, on these verses. I said, no problem. I flew back to Florida. I went to the library. And what I discovered as I began digging in Romans chapter 5 verses 12 through 21 is that this is the most important passage in all of Scripture. Now that's my opinion based upon what Paul says here because it is so critical in understanding redemptive history. If you want a snapshot at redemptive history, if you want a summary as to why you are who you are and where you are right now and who God is and what God is doing in the world through Christ, Romans 5 is the place to go. Now, the famous Martin Lloyd-Jones sums up this passage when he says, God has always dealt with mankind through a head and representative. The whole story of the human race can be summed up in terms of what has happened because of Adam and what has happened and will yet happen because of Christ. To put it another way, the Apostle Paul, writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, provides for us in Romans chapter 5 an analogy between Adam and Christ, the respective heads of two different humanities, two different groups of people, two different communities. And really, it's an analogy of opposites, because what Paul is trying to show is the superiority of Christ 
over Adam. He's trying to show the superiority of the second Adam or the last Adam over the first Adam. And so we see in these verses that Adam was defeated while Christ was victorious. We see that while Adam sinned, Christ did not. We see that while Adam and his actions led to condemnation for all, Christ and his actions lead to justification for all who place faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, understanding the context is important. Paul is basically answering how one sacrifice, one sacrifice on the cross could lead to the salvation of so many because that's really what he's been emphasizing here in Romans 5. This is the salvation section of the book of Romans. How can one act of one man in human history impact so many people? It was Winston Churchill who famously said, so many owe so much to so few. But as Christians, we need to say, so many owe so much to only one and namely the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're going to look at these verses in two shots, at least that's going to be my attempt. And if you were to break up these verses into two sections, you would see that verses 12 through 14 speak about death in Adam, and then verses 15 through 21 speak about life in Christ. So first Paul gives to us a perspective of what it means to die in Adam. In verses 12 through 14, and he follows that with what it means to have life in Christ in verses 15 through 21. Now, obviously, Paul speaks about Adam and Christ in both of these parts, and so there's some dovetailing that goes on. But Paul begins his argument by emphasizing death in Adam, only to then give us the good news of what it means to have life in Christ. This morning, we just want to look at that first section, death in Adam, verses 12 through 14, and I simply have four points this morning. There are the four points that the Apostle Paul has, and that begins the beginning of verse 12 with what I want to call the proposition. Paul begins in verse 12 with a sentence that he never really finishes. Notice verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, and then he breaks off his sentence and he begins a new thought really in verse number 13. Now, we're going to get to what it means when Paul says what he says in verse 12 and sort of breaks it off, why he does that in a little while. But I want to draw your attention just to that first phrase of verse 12 because that's the proposition Paul is setting up. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Now, the context and flow of the passage, as we are going to see, is that that one man refers to Adam, the first human being ever created. And Paul begins the proposition with therefore. The word therefore connects us Back to what Paul has just taught, namely that justified believers have, through Christ, been reconciled to God. For example, skip back up to verse 8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And then Paul says in verse 11, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So this proposition, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, introduces to us a new thought, but not one that's disattached from the larger teaching of justification 
by faith alone and the corresponding result of reconciliation. That's what justification does. God declares us righteous and then he brings us close to himself. He reconciles us through Christ. And Paul is beginning this comparison, this analogy of opposites by speaking about Adam and Christ, but he begins by speaking about Adam and that old state of condemnation which necessitated the new state of justification. He's emphasizing here that there are really two races of people. There are two humanities. There's an old one in Adam. There's a new one in Christ. There is the reign of death because of Adam. There's the reign of life because of Christ. But he begins with Adam, just as sin came into the world through one man. He begins negatively. Why? Well, like what Calvin says, he says, we cannot see with so much clearness what we have in Christ as by having what we lost in Adam set before us. And that's exactly what Paul does. So he proposes, through one man, sin entered the world. Now that is a summary statement because you know your Bibles and I know my Bible and we know that there's a lot more to that. That is a very simple and oversimplified way of putting it, that through one man sin entered the world. But how did it enter in the world? How did all of this come about? Well, Paul doesn't go into detail on that. He's simply proposing that one man, through one man, sin came or sin entered into the world. Now, we know elsewhere in Scripture, for example, the commencement of sin. The commencement of sin originated with Satan. 1 John 3, 8 says that he has sinned from the beginning. That is, he sinned before Adam was created. So notice Paul does not say that sin originated with Adam. He simply says that sin entered the world through Adam. It came into the world through Adam. Sin originally originated in heaven by Satan. As hard as that is for you to imagine, not Adam on earth. Well, Paul's not denying that. He's just making a summary statement. Through one man, sin entered the human world. He doesn't speak about the commencement of sin. In this summary proposition, he also doesn't speak about the cooperation to sin. You know that Satan first tempted Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. She then gave that fruit to her husband who ate it. And and we read about this in Genesis chapter 3 earlier for our public reading of Scripture. Genesis 3 and verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And Paul crystallizes that in 2 Corinthians eleven three. He says the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul goes on to even say that Eve was complicit for this first sin. Paul says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So the woman was a transgressor as well. The woman was a sinner as well. But Paul doesn't mention that. The fact that Adam was held liable for the first sin, which is what Paul is getting at in verse 12 of Romans 5, this is not a peripheral theological point. This is is not an unorthodox proposition. His very wording, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Paul is teaching a very vital concept, and it is the concept of federalism, or if you like, covenant theology. Now, that leads to a third thing that Paul doesn't mention in this proposition. He doesn't mention the commencement of sin, the beginning of it. He only mentions the beginning of it from Adam. 
He doesn't mention the cooperation of sin by Eve. In fact, he doesn't even mention Eve in this verse. He just talks about Adam's sin. He says it's through that one man that it came, sin came into the world. He also doesn't mention here the covenant that had consequences for sin. There was a covenant God made with Adam. Turn back with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. This is so critical. Notice with me in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now notice he took the man. Eve wasn't created yet. Verse 15. Now verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man. Eve wasn't created yet. Saying you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely. What does it say? Die. You shall surely die. This is covenantal language. Indicating that God made a covenant with Adam in which Adam represented Eve and all their progeny, everyone that would come after them. Here's how R.C. Sproul explains what we call the covenant of works, as it's laid out there in Genesis chapter 2. Sproul says, and I quote, In the covenant of works, God set before Adam the promise of blessedness. They could eat of the tree of life and live forever if they were obedient. They were told that they must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest they die. What happened to Adam and Eve in the garden, Sproul says, is surrounded with the structure of an agreement or a covenant, a promise of either destruction or blessing, depending on how they performed. That is why it is called a covenant of works. Those who worked righteousness would live, but those who worked disobedience would perish along with their progeny. So there's always curses and blessings attached to God's agreements or in the framework of his covenants. Now, in this proposition, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, as I said, Paul does not mention the commencement of sin, which began with Satan in heaven. He doesn't mention the cooperation to sin, which Eve was complicit in. And he doesn't mention the covenant in Genesis 2. However, all of these concepts are embedded in that statement, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. They're all there. All of those realities are there. Paul's not denying any of that. He's simply giving a summary proposition to readers that are already familiar with all of this. Now, you may not be familiar with it because in the United States of America, dispensationalism typically has ruled pulpits. And so I have to take five to ten minutes to explain to you the covenant theology that is clearly behind this. But all of these realities are there, in particular the reality of the covenant. Paul's readers were familiar with Hosea 6-7, which asserts that Adam transgressed the covenant. What covenant? The covenant of Genesis chapter 2. What's the summary of that? Well, just as sin came into the world through one man. That's the summary. Sin entered the world through one man who was given responsibility to obey, and he did not obey. That is what Paul is getting at. And on the surface, most people would not have a disagreement, at least superficially with that statement that sin came into the world through one man. In other words, all Bible-believing Christians will affirm that's the way sin came into the world, but they miss the covenant theology that's implicit in verse 12. And the various different views, although they're nuanced, come down to two primary views. One is what I want to call imitation, and the other is called imputation. Now, if you hold to imitation, then you're a Pelagian, and you believe what Pelagian taught. Pelagianism teaches that sin is only passed down to us by way of imitating Adam. So, mankind descended from Adam, and all mankind that come from Adam have a choice, and the choice is this, to sin 
or not to sin. To sin or not to sin. But look closer at verse 12 because it doesn't mention anything about individual acts of sins, plural, but one sin. Just as sin, singular, not plural, came into the world through one man, not many men or many women. So it's Adam's sin, not our individual sins, which is in view. The passage does not teach sin by imitation. No, the passage teaches sin by imputation. Imputation is this. The guilt of our father Adam has been imputed to the entire human race because of what he did. Now remember the context. The context is Romans 5, the great doctrine of justification by faith alone. The doctrine that the imputed righteousness of Christ is applied to the believer who comes to God and asks for it, who has faith in Christ. So if you don't like the idea of Adam's guilt being imputed to you, then why do you so freely accept the view and even celebrate the view that Christ's righteousness has been imputed to you? You say, well, because the reality is I I know myself. And if I were there with Adam, I would have persuaded him not to eat that. And, And I wouldn't have eaten it myself. And I say to you, but no, you wouldn't. And you say, well, how do you know? Well, because Eve was there. And Eve was an intricate part of the conspired rebellion against God. Verse 12 teaches the doctrine of total depravity and original sin. You want a simple definition of total depravity and original sin? Here it is. You don't become a sinner by imitating Adam and sinning. You become a sinner because you are one by nature. You have Adam's guilt imputed to you. Because of his sin, you are a sinner by nature. And then you act upon that with individual acts. But that's a separate topic. You are born into this world with the imputed guilt of Adam, every human being. Now, getting back to Pelagius, Augustine debated Pelagius and argued that Adam before the fall had two abilities. Augustine said Adam had the posse picar, that is the ability to sin. And he also had number two, the posse non picar, that is the ability not to sin. Now, this is Adam pre-fall. He had the ability to sin, and he had the ability not to sin. Augustine also argued that Adam had two more abilities, the posse mori, which is the ability to die, and the posse non mori, which is the ability not to die. In other words, what Augustine was getting at is that for our original parents, neither sin nor death was an inevitability. But after the fall, all who came after Adam lost the posse non picar, the ability not to sin. And instead, we are all in a state of non posse non picar. That is, it is not possible for us not to sin. And we have also lost the posse non mori, the ability not to die. And now we are in the state of non posse non mori, the inability not to die. All of us, we have an inability not to do anything but sin, and we have an inability not to do anything but die. All of us sin, all of us die. The boast of heraldry, the pomp of power. And all the beauty, all that wealth e'er gave, awaits alike the inevitable hour. The paths of glory lead but to the grave. That is the reality for all of us. And in comparing Adam to Christ, this is the flow of the passage, Paul is pressing home a critical theology concerning the gospel, and that is that Adam was the federal head of the original humanity. The real historical Adam passed sin down to his descendants. And if you want to deny a real historical Adam then that's going to lead you to deny a real historical Christ. Because what Adam did 
the real man led to the bad state that we are in now. And what Christ did led to the good state for those of us that are part of the kingdom of God. In fact, I love how MacArthur puts it. He says that when Adam sinned in the garden, he sinned not only as a man, but as man. He didn't just sin as a man, one among many, but as man. In your place, he sinned. And the fact that Paul clearly proposes this in this statement, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, is critical to the gospel. Because the imputation of Adam's guilt to all his descendants makes the doctrine of the imputation of Christ's righteousness that much more cherished. And not just cherished, but logical. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on your your behalf that you might become the righteousness of God. That's imputation. But there's double imputation. You have the imputed guilt of Adam. And until that's removed and you have it replaced with the imputed righteousness of Christ, there's no salvation. We sinned in one man. And we are saved by one man. Doesn't that make sense? We believe that we can't earn our way to heaven. We are saved by one man. And we sinned in one man. If all men don't fall with the first Adam, then how can we be sure that all men can be saved by the second Adam? That's really Paul's point. And what were we saved from? Well, Paul addresses that next. After giving, first of all, the proposition, he moves to give the penalty. What was the penalty of Adam's one sin? Notice your Bibles. He says, and death through sin. There it is. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, that first part, and death through sin, tells us that Adam's penalty because of his sin, he was punished with death. That the curse of the covenant of works was death through sin. Isn't that what God promised in Genesis 2? And the day you eat of the tree, you will surely die. Death here, I think, has the primary meaning of spiritual separation, which Adam experienced immediately after his sin. He felt disconnected from God. He was hiding from God. And what did God do? An animal was killed. The skins of that animal were used to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness. Through the blood of that animal, it was picturing the shed blood of Christ. This was a spiritual thing that God did by covering Adam to symbolize that he had been spiritually separated from God. The relationship was now different than it ever was before. Adam had never hidden from God before. He fellowshiped with God. But death also has a physical element to it here when it says that there was death through sin because Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. And there were a lot of trees in the garden, but one tree in particular was the tree of life. And I read Genesis 3 to you. The end of it clearly indicates that God said, if we allow access to the tree of life, they'll live forever. And they can't live forever because they've broken my law and the penalty is death. And so the cherubim guarded the garden from Adam and Eve entering and they were kicked out. So it's clear that death was the penalty. But Adam's one sin incurred the death penalty for all of humanity. And that's the point Paul is making. Because notice he goes on to say, after he says, and death through sin, he goes on to say, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Well, we know that. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. Ephesians 2.1, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. But Paul's not referring to our own actual sins. Even though on the surface it appears that way. Notice the language of the English Death spread to all men because all sinned. And we naturally want to take that to mean 
that it's a reference to all of our individual sins. Adam sinned and it led to death, and we sin, and so death is the result. That's not what Paul's getting at. Because first of all, the word sinned there in verse 12, that word sinned is in the aorist tense. So it's a past tense. It denotes the historical past of the historical Adam who is under discussion. So what Paul is saying is that Adam's own sin became our sin because we were an Adam, because he represented us. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, in Adam all die. So Paul is not talking about individual actual sins we commit when he says, because all sin. We all sinned, past tense, in the historical Adam. 1 Corinthians 15.22, in Adam all die. Second, Paul can't be speaking about actual individual sins because human depravity is not the result of individual acts of sin that we commit. I already mentioned that earlier, but David says in Psalm 51.5, in sin my mother conceived me. That is to say, when I came out of the womb, I was a sinner. Or Psalm 58.5, the wicked are estranged from the womb. Those who speak lies go astray from birth. So babies don't act out on their depravity in a conscious way, but they're still guilty with original sin. Paul's not speaking about our individual sins, not only because of the past tense of the word sinned and because human depravity is not the result of individual acts, but also because it's not true that all die because of actual voluntary sins. If Paul meant death spread to all men because all sinned, if he meant by that that we die and we deserve death because of actual voluntary sins, then what about infants who never act out consciously on their own nature and then die? Calvin says this, For the natural depravity that we bring forth from our mother's womb, though it brings not forth immediately its fruits, is yet sin before God and deserves his vengeance. And this is what we call original sin. Paul's not speaking about individual acts of sins when he says, because all sinned. And again, verse 13, he says that some didn't even sin like Adam, and yet death reigned over them. So he's getting to the idea that Adam's sin is unique somehow, and that's the focus. And he's not speaking about the individual sins of us when he says all sinned, because of the repeated emphasis in this passage, where he says that death came from one sin of one man. Now, I call this the argument of five, because five times Paul says this, like a broken record. Notice, for example, verse 15. Many died through what? One man's trespass. There it is. Secondly, verse 16, the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Not many. Three, verse 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned. Four, One trespass led to condemnation for all men, verse 18. And five, verse 19, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. I mean, how much clearer can it get? Paul is not talking about you in verse 12. He's talking about Adam. And he's saying that Adam is the federal or covenantal head of the first humanity. And because he sinned one time, death spread to all. Because all sinned in him. Because he represented us. You say, that's hard to swallow. Well, just as the justified believer is in saving union with Christ, Paul's simply saying the condemned unbeliever is in damning union with Adam. 
all sinned in Adam, the federal head of the human race, therefore all received the death penalty. The singular sin of a single man results in the plural sin of all and the plural death of all. And you may object, but I wasn't with Adam when he sinned. How is this fair? Well, you weren't physically with Christ either on the cross when he died. And you weren't physically there by the tomb when he was raised. And Paul will bring this up. Skip to chapter 6. Paul understands what kind of arguments people might make. Notice verse 4 of Romans 6. He says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. Huh. So actually, not only were you with Adam in the garden, but if you're a justified believer, you were with Jesus at the cross. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In other words, Christ was raised and you've been raised. You've been given new life. You've been raised from the dead. Verse 5, For if we have been united with Him in a death-like kiss, that is to say, you were with Him on the cross, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection-like. So because He was raised, there's a sense in which we were there with Him and we were raised. Now notice, I'm giving no attempt to explain how that's possible. Do you know why? Because I can't, and neither can you. There is a mystery to it. But it's not far-fetched when you understand the doctrine of the imputation of Christ's righteousness. It's logical that there was the imputation of Adam's guilt. One man's act led to our salvation. One man's act led to our condemnation. And this solidarity of the human race I recognize it's hard in our individualistic Western society to grasp. But in the East, both of yesterday and today, it was not. Let me quote to you a passage from literature of Judaism in Paul's day. This is what it says. A grain of evil seed was sown in the heart of Adam from the beginning. And how much wickedness hath it brought forth into this time? A wicked, evil seed was sown in the heart of Adam... And look how much wickedness it has brought, been brought forth into this time. In other words, Adam is to blame for sin because he represented us. We were in him. This is the concept of human solidarity. The actions of one resulting in the consequences for the many. And it's printed throughout all of your Bible. We won't take the time to go into detail, but let me just give you a couple of examples. We're working through the book of Joshua on Sunday nights, and you remember that Achan stole treasure from Jericho. He stole treasure from Jericho, which God was clear should have been devoted to destruction. But because of Achan's sin as an individual, the Bible nevertheless says this. The Israelites, notice plural, not just Achan, the Israelites acted unfaithfully in referring to Achan's sin. And not only that, but it says the Lord burned with anger against Israel, not just Achan. In fact, God says in Joshua, Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant. What a parallel. Adam has sinned. But God says, you have sinned and violated my covenant in Adam. Just as Joshua says, Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant. It says nothing about Achan. Achan represented all of Israel in a sense. Human solidarity. Here's another example of that. Acts 4.27, for truly in this city there were those gathered together against your holy servant whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Pilate washed his hands of the crucifixion of Christ and yet Acts 4.27 says he was guilty along with Herod, along with Gentiles, along with all the peoples of Israel. You say, well, there were some Gentiles who believed. Yeah, 
There were some Israelites who believed, yeah, but God implicates everyone. They are guilty. Horatius Boner, 19th century Scottish hymn writer, "'Twas I that shed the sacred blood, I nailed him to the tree, I crucified the Christ of God, I joined the mockery." We are just as guilty for the death of Christ as those who physically led Jesus and executed him at Calvary. There's another example, and the author of Hebrews gives this. He mentions Melchizedek, the mysterious king-priest. And we read that Melchizedek blessed Abraham, who was the ancestor of Levi, the head of the priestly line, and also accepted from Abraham, again the forefather of Levi, head of the priestly line, a tithe from the spoils of war. You say, well, what does that have to do with this? Well, the author of Hebrews actually argues, he actually argues that Levi, the one appointed to receive tithes from the people, actually paid tithes through Abraham in the sense that Levi was still in the loins of Abraham, his ancestor, when Melchizedek met him. Hebrews 7, 9. So there was a sense in which he was in his loins and paid those tithes. So back to Romans chapter 5 and Paul's point. Death is the penalty because of Adam's sin. We were one with Adam when he sinned, just as God considered us one with Christ when he was raised again from the dead. You see, there is no point crying to God for justice, because if what you want is justice, then you immediately get hell. This is the grace of God. You say, well, it's not fair. One man's act leads to this. Yeah, but it's not fair that one man's act, Christ, leads to salvation either. The issue is not fairness. The issue is the structure of the way God has designed his world and the fact that God is not obligated to ever enter into a covenant with man. He chose to. If you want one illustration of that to prove God's grace in the matter, consider the angels. They fell with Lucifer And they were consigned to hell forever with no opportunity for redemption. And I think that's why Peter says that the holy angels long to discover the riches of the gospel. Because the holy angels never sinned. Therefore, they never experienced the bad news of failure and falling. And consequently, the good angels have never experienced the good news of salvation. They long to discover the riches of the gospel. The good angels, it is more of a mystery to them than it is to us, and it's a mystery to us. How could God be so gracious and so loving and so kind? If God is just, why didn't he just obliterate his world? Why would he even enter a covenant? Oh God, thank you that although Adam represented me, thank you God that Christ came as the second Adam to represent me. It is unfathomable, the depth of the riches of God's grace, and that's what Paul says. So it's not fairness that we want. Fairness is hell. Fairness is judgment for eternity. Penalty is death, and rightly so, because you had the best representative you could ever have. First human being, innocent. The ability to sin, the ability not to sin. The ability to die, the ability not to die, and he failed. We no longer have the ability not to sin. We no longer have the ability not to die unless we know Christ. And I hope you know Christ this morning. I hope you understand that all this theology that we're speaking about, really, we need to zero in on the fact that this is a matter of life and death. This is a summary of redemptive history. 
But you're either in one of two places this morning. You're either in Adam, dead in your sins and trespasses, or you're in Christ and you've been freed. Now, you can't argue with God and you can't get out of the covenantal structure and you can't deny what Scripture says. You will meet Him someday, either with Christ standing by you and you in Him, or you're still in your sins because Adam is still your representative and he's not going to do a good job representing you. Now, Paul's going to set forth some proof. Proof that death comes to us because of what Adam did, not what we did. And that takes us to verses 13 and 14. Notice verse 13. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Now here is the proof that death came to us because of the actions of one man. Paul, one man. Paul makes three statements here to prove that Adam's choice of sin resulted in natural depravity and death. First statement is, verse 13, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Well, there's nothing hard to understand about that. But notice the second statement. But sin is not counted where there is no law. That is to say, the written or spoken law allows for sin to be attached to a person. If there's no law, if there's no definition of law, then there's no identification of sin or a lawbreaker. No clear law, then it's hard to call someone a lawbreaker. There has to be a clear law and a clear violation of that law. And Adam says, or Paul says, sin is not counted where there is no law. I've told this story before, but one time I got a ticket, a traffic violation. And um, I shouldn't lie, I've had more than one, but not a lot. But on this particular time, I was picking someone up from the airport. And I got pulled over. And I had no clue why I got pulled over. And the officer told me that um, I had a headlight out. And, and I, was, I was curious how he knew I had a headlight out because it was daytime and my headlights were not on. But as he went back to his car to write the ticket, I discovered that he was confusing my headlights for my running lights. It is against the law to have a running light out. However, technicality here, he didn't say I had a running light out. He said I had a headlight out. So when he went back to his car, I decided to have a little bit of fun because I knew that if I turned my headlights on, then the running lights would turn off. And he would not see that one of my running lights was off. And so he came back to my window and I said, officer, I just have one question. Are you sure that I have a headlight out? He says, well, I know I'm sure. And he walked around to the front of the car and you should have seen his face. Because I had turned my headlights on, the running lights were off. There was no broken light anywhere in visible sight. And so he tore the ticket up and he went on his way. Now I had transgressed the law because my running light was out, but I was not guilty for breaking the law that my headlight was out. There was no law that says you can't have your headlights on in the daytime. So because of this officer's wrong incitement, I got away with no penalty. There was no clear violation of the law. Now, I admit that I sort of cheated the system, but he's the one who said I had a headlight out, not me. Notice verse 14a, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Let's put all three of these statements together. The first statement, the law was given at the time of Moses. Sin indeed was in the world. Before the law was given, meaning at the time of Moses, sin indeed was in the world. We know that because God destroyed the world with a flood. So sin was clearly there. The second statement's not as easy. 
But sin is not counted where there is no law. What Paul is not saying here, he's not saying that before Mosaic law was given, that God didn't count people's sin against them. God destroyed the the world with a flood. God punished Cain for killing Abel. God punished those who built the Tower of Babel. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah as punishment. Paul's not saying that man has no awareness whatsoever of God's law. Romans 2.14 is clear. You remember that back several weeks ago. For within Gentiles who don't have the law by nature, do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. Paul's not denying any of that. He's also not saying that sinners are completely unaware of their evil actions or the evil actions of others. What he is saying is that all sin, but not all sin like Adam. Why? Because not all sin is a direct disobedience against a spoken, direct, or written word from God. He's not saying that God's moral law isn't written on the heart. He's not saying that we're not aware of sin and that prior to Moses, people had no clue that God had standards. People knew instinctively what was right and wrong. But what he's saying is that disobedience to an inward law written on the heart prior to Moses is not the same thing as violating a direct spoken word from God. And I'll give you an example. As a parent, you may punish your child for going outside to play before cleaning their room. But if this rule is assumed, in other words, it was never spoken, the child may be punished because he sort of knows better based on other parental expectations. But his punishment is not going to be as severe as the punishment for the child who defiantly disobeys a spoken order which says, Do not go outside and play until your room is cleaned or you will be grounded. And you see, Paul's point is the latter was the case with Adam. He was given a direct spoken law. Don't eat of that tree. When you do, if you do, you die. But after that, until Moses, there was no law directly from God for the vast majority of humanity. There was no written law. Calvin says, without the law reproving us, we in a manner sleep in our sins. And that's Paul's point. When he says there that before the law was given, sin is not counted where there is no law. Without the law reproving us, Calvin says, we in a manner sleep in our sins. We suppress as much as we can the knowledge of evil offered to us. But that leads to that third statement. Verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. I like what John Murray says. He says, death came to all men, not by reason of their own actual transgression or individual sin, but because of their involvement in the sin of Adam. That's why death reigns. Now, putting all of this together, let me read it again. Verse 13, for sin indeed was in the world before the law. Everyone understands that. Before the law was given, sin was in the world, and God punished sin, and people knew what was right and what was wrong. But he says, but sin is not counted where there is no law. It's not counted in the same way. Yet, verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. In other words, God still punished sinners, even though their transgression was not like Adam's, not a direct spoken word. 
Here's his point. Even though all sin, some do so more ignorantly than others by comparison. And yet God still held all men responsible. Even the ones that sinned ignorantly, even those who didn't have the written word of God, even those who never had God speak to them, God still punished them with death. And you say, why and how? It all goes back to what we've been talking about. We are guilty of Adam's sin because Adam represents us. And his sin led to death for all people without distinction. Whether you ever heard a word from God, whether you ever read a written law of God, it came to us all. Because 1 Corinthians 15, 22, and Adam all die. In fact, it can be said that nobody's sin, to borrow the language of verse 14, is like the transgression of Adam. Why? Well, because Adam alone represents the entire human race. And when he fell, we all fell regardless of the heaps of sins piled up after that one sin. Paul's not denying any of that. He's spoken about the depravity of man in Romans 1, how wicked and evil and sinful we all are. He's not denying any of that. He's upheld the law of God. He's not saying that there was a time God's law didn't exist in any sense. But what he's saying is to make a point that Adam broke a verbal law of God defiantly. And because he represented all of mankind, death spread to all of mankind, even over those who didn't see a written law or hear a written law, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even in that time period in which it wasn't clear what God's expectations were. Those who didn't sin exactly like Adam, God says, I don't care. Adam sinned and he represents you. Now that's the argument. So Paul begins with the proposition, beginning of verse 12, sin entered the human world through one man. He then gave us the penalty, verse 12, death for all by one. And now he's given the proof. God holds those liable, even those who sin in ignorance. And death reigns. Go read Genesis 5. Death, 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 death. One person after another died generationally. But that leads to the fourth point. The proposition, the penalty, the proof. Now notice with me the pattern. And this is key. Referring to Adam, Paul says at the end of verse 14, who, speaking about Adam, was a type of the one who was to come. Underline that. That is critical to understand this. He was a type of the one who was to come. Genesis 3.15 is clear that there was one who was to come, right? The seed of the woman. So what is Paul getting at? Well, he's saying that just as sin and death entered the world through the first Adam so too life and righteousness enter the world through the one who was to come. That is the last Adam. The one who came to set all things right. First Adam was a pattern for the second Adam. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So Adam started a pattern of representing a group of people, and Christ completes it. Adam started the pattern of God imputing what that one man does to everyone who comes after, and Christ followed it. We've been imputed with the guilt of Adam, the sin of Adam, and the consequence of death. And that Adam 
Although a negative example and pattern is nevertheless a pattern of the positive righteousness of Christ imputed to our account. This is um, really brought out even clearer in 1 Corinthians 15. Take your Bibles and turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I was going to quote it earlier, but as we come to the end of our time, this is the appropriate time. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now notice this language. It should sound just like Romans 5. It's the same author. It's Paul. For as by a man, one man, came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Under whose feet? Under Christ's feet. Do you realize this morning that you are not only no longer in the state of condemnation and death if you're a Christian, you're not merely in the state of justification and life. You've moved from condemnation to justification. You've moved from death to life. But you've also moved from the old Garden of Eden to the new Garden of Eden. You are a member of Christ's kingdom, the second Adam, in which 1 Corinthians 15 says that God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Because you say to yourself, if sin happened in heaven with Lucifer and sin happened with Adam, a perfect, innocent representative, then how are we so sure that sin won't happen again? We'll skip down to verse 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. It's not just that you have a first and second Adam, you have a first and last Adam. There's no more Adams to come. Christ is the last Adam, he's the last king, he's the king of kings, he's the Lord of lords, and we are saved by him. You and I, all of us, if we are to be saved, will be saved by good works. There is no salvation apart from good works. But Adam failed, Christ didn't. Christ never sinned in thought, word, or deed. All of his righteousness is applied to your account through faith in him. It's amazing. Because of Adam, condemnation was the outcome, imputation of sin and guilt. Because of Christ, justification is the outcome, the imputation of his righteousness. So this isn't a matter of imitation. We just follow Adam's bad example and thus death reigns over us. No, this is a matter of participation. We shared in the sin of Adam. And it's a matter of imputation. His righteousness was given to us in the place of the sin imputed to us because of Adam. We have all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, Isaiah says. So we need clothed in the righteous blood of his holy sacrifice at Calvary, just like that little animal was slain in the Garden of Eden. So Paul's sentence in verse 12 
may be incomplete, but his point in verses 12 through 21 is not incomplete. His thought is incomplete, but or his sentence is incomplete, but his thought is not incomplete. His gospel is not incomplete. Because what Paul is doing is he is simply explaining how it is that God can consider one man's sacrifice enough to bring alienated sinners back to God. And it's simple. Because one man was responsible for leading the rebellion against God. One man is responsible for leading us back to God. Jesus is that new general We are not at war against him. We are at war with him because he fought fought sin, death, and Satan. Why is it so hard to believe that we were in Adam when he sinned and his sin counts as our sin when we believe the gospel which says we take no credit for what Christ did for us. It's dependent upon one man. His act of righteousness and shedding his blood, his perfect life leading up to that results in our salvation. So that's an interesting way for Paul to clarify, crystallize, and elevate the doctrine of the imputed righteousness of Christ in Romans 5. That's an interesting way to do it. He goes all the way back to Genesis and he says, look guys, this isn't that hard to understand. This isn't too good to be true. You have received by faith the imputed righteousness of Christ. But guess what? You had received the imputed guilt of Adam. It's not hard to believe that Christ would be so gracious. His justice and His mercy, sin coming to all, followed by His justice and mercy, salvation coming to all who place faith in His Son. This is the fabric of the gospel. This is the framework of the gospel. This is the bedrock and essence of the gospel. And if you don't understand that Adam represents you or Christ represents you, then you don't understand the gospel. Our desire is for you to know that in Adam you're alienated, but through Christ you can be reconciled. And next week will be the good news because... Paul will compare Adam and Christ again, but this time he will emphasize the life and the grace that we have in Christ. And that's why we're here this morning, to worship him and thank him for that grace. I hope this sermon from God's word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.